to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. As we celebrate our podcast birthday this month and embark on our second year, we're extremely grateful for your continued support. To show our appreciation, we're launching a podcast review contest. It's easy to enter. Go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review the Pro Bono Happy Hour. We'd love to hear from you. And your honest feedback makes it easier for other listeners to find the program, expanding the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Winners will be selected from those people who leave a review before October 31st, that's Halloween, and will be announced on our show and on our blog, the PBI, E-B-E-Y-E, pro bono as we see it. Today's guest is Angela Vigil of Baker & McKenzie. Angela is based in Miami, and we had such an incredible and expansive conversation that we've broken it up into two episodes. This week, in part one, we discuss her career, a wide range of pro bono efforts to help children in need, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Angela. Thanks for joining us on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Rena. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're excited to speak with you today. Let's jump right in. Let's begin by discussing your role at Baker & McKenzie. Could you tell us what your current title is or titles, since perhaps you have a few, and tell us a little (laughs) bit about your general job responsibilities and portfolio? Absolutely. I am the pro bono partner and executive director of Baker & McKenzie's pro bono practice. And that is a newer title because I am proud to say that I am uh, not the only pro bono partner at Baker & McKenzie. In 2015, we were able to expand our staff of professionals in this space, and a fellow lawyer is a pro bono partner for Baker & McKenzie as well. We both focus our efforts on managing, directing, leading, recruiting, cheerleading uh, the practice, focused on uh, starting with our North America lawyers, but Baker & McKenzie is inherently global in every it does as is its pro bono footprint. So our pro bono practice crosses borders, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. I am proud to say that I have these responsibilities to manage the practice together with my colleague, Jacqueline Pampel, but I also have a practice. Um, It is not a billable practice at all. I've never had a billable practice in my career, but I do carry uh, some cases. And some of those cases are with others on, you know, teams of things that we're doing that might be um, systemic or impact-oriented sort of research projects. But I also carry a live caseload representing children here in Miami, Florida, where I live, because I've been a children's lawyer for just about 20 years now, and because I think that the direct representation not only helps me bring other lawyers along from the firm into this work, but also helps keep me and our practice honest about the value add that we have, especially in the area of children's rights, but in poverty law in general. So you you mentioned your career. I'd like to step back for a minute. Before joining the firm, you were a public interest lawyer and a clinical teacher. Could you tell us about your journey to the firm? And how did that transition come about? It's such an interesting story. I had the great honor upon graduating from Northwestern Law School in 1995 of being asked to help open up a small West Side 
clinic in Chicago called the Children's Law Clinic for the, Nor- the then Northwestern Legal Clinic, now the Bloom Legal Clinic um, at Northwestern Law School, the Pritzker Law School. And the clinic was nothing more than a desk and a phone, um, quite frankly, in the middle of the Northwestern Settlement House, which was a center for community activity in the neighborhood called West Town in Chicago. And I was basically taking everything that walked in the door. Um, my first case was a guardianship case of a grandmother who showed up with three small children. They had to be under the age of six and gradually um talked to me through her pigeon English and my then pigeon Spanish about how she needed to enroll them in school, and she didn't have legal authority because she didn't have guardianship. And we arranged to get her guardianship, and what that turned into later is every time I met with her, she brought more children, and it turned out this grandmother was raising nine children who were the children of her three adult grown daughters, um, none of whom were taking full-time care of their children and had left them with their grandmother. That began several years, both at the West Side Clinic for Northwestern and then eventually coming back over to the main campus of the law school to teach a clinic in juvenile justice work, children's rights, and to start the children's law pro bono program that Northwestern started, recruiting large law firms to come and be part of the justice system in Chicago's uh, children's court. The juvenile court in Chicago is the oldest in the country, and it has huge, at the time, the, it had 20,000 juvenile justice cases that came in every year, and a very active child welfare side of the court as well. So my job was to recruit law firm attorneys to come and do those cases. One of those firms eventually was Baker McKenzie, who helped not only with juvenile justice cases, but also with zero tolerance cases. And I um, was helping Baker and McKenzie figure out how to even go further in professionalizing and develop their pro bono practice. And that became a position that they created, and I ended up being the first to fill as their first pro bono counsel in 2003. We often get questions, and I'm guessing you do too, from people who think they'd like to work in law firm pro bono about how to go about getting your job. (laughs) What advice (laughs) do you give people who want your job? Well, first, I tell them they're absolutely right. They want this job. It is a great gig, as I like to say. And I say that because you're working with extremely smart people. And when you come in and ask them to do something so often, they put everything aside and say, absolutely, how can I help, which just feels wonderful as part of the profession. Um, so, so the interest should be there because it is a, a, a great, um, it's a great position to have. It's sort of a bridging position, though. It's a pr- bridging position between public interest law and private bar law, and more and more in my experience, not only private bar with the firm, but also with in-house counsel, because we invite in-house counsel to be a big part of our pro bono work whenever we can make opportunities available to them and when we need their help. And so you're really bridging all kinds of different people who speak different languages. So the path there can be very unusual. um, I have seen people take this path from inside the firm, turning it into a pro bono position, and then people like me who come from outside in public interest. But I would say a depth of experience, trying to get a career that has a depth of experience in at least two of those places, right? Whether it's in-house and public interest or law firm and in-house and public interest is the best thing to bring to this. It is um, on a daily basis, you're trying to help people whose habits may be formed by the other kind of work they do 
change, adjust those habits just a bit to do this kind of work. And that's true for public, working with the public interest bar, as well as working with my own lawyers, the law firm, as well as working with in-house attorneys. So somebody who's really able to translate well, somebody who's very flexible, um, somebody who has ex- some experience in a couple of those places is really helpful. And of course, bringing a professionalism to it is why I think it's such an important job to have law firms have and create and put lawyers in the role of leading a pro bono practice. It is, after all, a practice. It's, um, we, we, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a, a um, oh, I guess a school marm about calling it a practice instead of a program because it is part of the legal practice and if we're as responsible for it as lawyers as any part of our practice. And so I think it needs to be led by a lawyer. I often like to call it the largest practice group at any firm. (laughs) And the most fun and the most exciting and the most passionate, of course. Before we move on, could I ask a follow-up question? Because you mentioned zero-tolerance cases, and I'm not sure all our listeners will know what that means. Could you just quickly explain that for people who were curious what that meant? Absolutely. Um, we do this representation, and so do a lot of outstanding public interest organizations around the country, representing children who've been removed from school, either expelled or suspended because of actions that may or may not um, have been justified to be an expulsion offense many decades ago. Um, and or even a suspension offense. But when this idea of zero tolerance came into the public schools, it was that schools would have no tolerance for any kind of infraction, and they would remove children quickly. Um, thankfully, there's been a real turnaround around that in the country, and there is less. Formally, a lot of school districts have rejected this idea of zero tolerance policies. I refer to a zero tolerance one because that's where my work started, was in the middle of that fever of um, removing kids from school, and often that's removing poor kids from poor schools. And And um, so when we say taking on those cases, it's representing those kids to get them back in school or to show why they should not have been removed in the first place or to stop that removal, whether it's a removal for a short 10-day suspension or a permanent expulsion from regular public schools, which can keep you from doing so many things in your life successfully. Thank you. I think that's really helpful background for people to have. Day-to-day, month-to-month, could you tell us a little bit about how you spend your time? I can certainly try. Um, I'm really fortunate in that I have a very diverse uh, day, week, month, year for sure. My days follow not only the areas that we take cases, but we have made a real decision um, at Baker and McKenzie to try to transform our practice into one that is focused absolutely on the impact that we're going to have with our pro bono work. And in doing that, we actually said, let's experiment. This year in 2016, let's choose four areas that we already know we have passion, we have interest, we have some expertise or at least experience, and we have a great interest in changing the game um, in the area of poverty law, public interest law, and sort of social justice. And those four areas for us are justice crossing borders, which can be anything from immigration advocacy here in the United States to to uh, people crossing borders all over the world in light of crises and the things going on up in Europe, et cetera. The second one, um, in no particular order, the next one is children's rights, which ranges from every area of law that touches uh, that touches youth. So it might be juvenile justice, child welfare, child uh, human trafficking, public benefits, education, et cetera. Rule of law, which also gets pretty um, expanded for us, whether it's helping work on constitutions, helping with uh, 
whether it is helping work with constitutions and drafting them, whether it's war crimes tribunals or whether it's peace negotiations. And then the last area is strengthening nonprofits. And so just the diversity of those four areas gives you a sense of what my days are like. I travel a lot, partly because I'm active in the public interest bar with conferences and presentations and representing not only the firm, but the places and the things that we want to accomplish um, in, in live conferences. I travel to see to visit offices. I travel to work on projects with often with our corporate clients. And I um, when I do get to sort of stop and stay at home in Miami, my life is very much a conference call to conference call meeting with teams because I believe we should do everything in pro bono in teams. So I you will rarely see a pro bono matter at Baker McKenzie that only has one lawyer on it. Um, we'll always make sure everybody's got a backup. And you certainly won't find us having, um, you know, when we're teaming, when we're teaming with in-house counsel, it's usually a few of them and a few of us together trying to solve a problem. Since we try to be diverse problem solvers, the days get pretty diverse and they go well into the nights and weekends um, because the work just doesn't stop when you're trying to change something that needs to be changed. Well, you're extremely busy doing extraordinarily important work, and we're really grateful that you took the time to be with us today. What do you enjoy most about your work? There is something special. There is something really special about seeing someone who takes the thing that they have worked the most in their lives to make great, right? In this case, their legal talent, that they've gone to school for 19 years, that they've continued to do professional development so that they can be the best lawyer they can be, and to dedicate that full-throated and wholeheartedly to an issue that just is outrageous and needs to be addressed. And so when I watch one of my tax lawyers sort of put aside their billable work for a moment and go, this is outrageous, we have to do something about this. When I get an email from someone who says, I read about the work we're doing with street youth, and I just think it's insane, and is there any way I can help? And it's not limited to our lawyers, right? I will get emails and calls from the economists across the firm, the other legal professionals saying, I've, I've seen what you guys are all working on. How can I, how can I just donate time? That is a, it's an amazing feeling because, you know, often people, it's not that they're taking that time away from their other responsibilities. They're sort of for a moment putting their own lives or their children or their families or their communities and their partners and their billable work for the firm on hold. In addition to all of that, they're adding this to their plate because it's so important. There is something amazing about watching people say, that's not even a sacrifice. That's a choice I'm going to make. And that can keep you going in a job like this forever because <laughs> it's really inspiring. What are the greatest professional challenges you face? That's a good question. It's a different challenge every day, I think. Um, I would say all of mine fall into the category of the social justice challenges we are trying to address are there for a reason. And it's not just, oh, there's not enough money in the foster care system and that's why it's the failing system or there, you know, there weren't enough people sitting around to, to make sure that that constitution was drafted the right way. It has to do with entrenched beliefs and fear of change and sort of bureaucracy and things that are just difficult to imagine how you can turn around. You've got to change minds and change minds isn't easy. I think the fact that we are trying to look at a system, say right now we're looking at this issue of children not being able to get access to their own identifications, not only in our country, but in countries across the world. And that doesn't seem like it should be such a problem. That doesn't seem like it should be an example of entrenchment. But because they're, the process of do people getting information about themselves is entrenched in bureaucracies and the way um, systems function, changing that to address the issue of 
street kids across the world who can't get their documentation, former foster youth across the country who can't get their own ID documents so they can get a job. It's much harder than you'd think. I think I run into that every day. That's one half of it. The other half of the challenge I face constantly is, okay, I get to be the pro bono partner and executive director at Baker and McKenzie, which is one of the most prominent and largest law firms in the world. Are we doing enough? Are we doing it the right way? Are we using the talent that we have that we can donate to this in a way that makes the most change? It's You always second guess yourself to wonder whether or not you're recruiting folks and driving folks towards the thing that will have the biggest impact. It's one of the things that's gotten better for us recently because of these choosing these areas of impact, we can really spend more time strategizing. So I'll be on a phone with a team that is focused on justice crossing borders, for example, and we will literally be saying, okay, we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this. Yay, pat ourselves on the back. That's great. Let's cheer everybody on. But are we doing this in the way that's going to move the ball forward the most effectively that we can, because we're different from other people. We're different from the public interest organization that does this full-time. We are only volunteers under their leadership. We're different from the government agencies that have huge responsibilities. We can come in and fill gaps differently, and so making sure we make those right choices to add the most value is probably something that keeps me up every night and I wake up with every morning with the challenge of making sure are we impacting the way we can. I love that question because it is challenging, but it's also what keeps us from resting on our laurels and keeps propelling us forward. So it it is really a call to action question that also motivates and inspires. So that's a fantastic answer and a lot of food for thought. So to call Baker and McKenzie a large firm might be an understatement. I, I read something the firm published just last week, but it may already be changing in this fast and evolving world. But to give listeners an idea, here's how the firm described itself just last week. With more than 4,100, that's 4,100 locally admitted lawyers and more than 5,800 business service professionals in 77 offices worldwide, we have a passionately collaborative community of 60 nationalities. So How do you direct a pro bono practice at a firm of that scale and scope? Very carefully. I um, I imagine it's it's very similar to what a, a lot of pro bono counsel experience, right? You're trying to take different people with different focuses and different ways of approaching issues, challenges, um, questions, language, and um, trying to get them all around the table. Our answer is teams. Our answer is teams to everything. And I don't mean exorbitantly large teams, but if I, I really welcome, and we as a practice really welcome nonprofit organizations um, and our public interest law organizations that refer us cases and things to come to us, not only with a case or a, or a person's individual challenge, but a problem. Whether Maybe it's a systemic problem. Maybe it's just a tiny, we can't get over this kind of a problem. And then I can pull different talents to the table to do it. So it is completely common for us to have a varied team of people with different kinds of experience so that they can um, add different pieces of the solution to the conversation. An easy example of that is when a nonprofit organization that's been working sort of informally for a while comes to us and says, can you help us formalize? Not only do we want to come and become an organization, but we really want to figure out how to best become an organization. And you bring what you would typically bring, right? An, an intellectual property lawyer to the table, a tax lawyer, a corporate lawyer, an employment lawyer. And they give the best advice about how this organization can meet its mission and function as a well-run, well-oiled nonprofit organization. 
same thing when we're talking about a constitution, right? Um, uh, when we're working on drafting something that is going to affect how people negotiate peace and then govern themselves for a while. And we don't have people who write constitutions for a living, but we do have a lot of people with diverse experience because as from the description that you read, as you could probably imagine, we attract people with, who have for a long time had an interest in being a global citizen and a global advocate. So I'll have people call and say, well, I've got an additional PhD from, you know, X international university just on this issue of human rights. Would that be helpful to the project that you're trying to recruit for, Angela? And, you know, that is just, that is the happiest email you get in a day, right? It's, can I, do I have a couple of pieces of talent that I can add to your recipe so that the result of the advice and guidance that we give a client, whether it's an individual, whether it's an organization, whether it's a movement, whether it is a country, um, to make that recipe deliver the best advice we possibly can. It's teams, 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 teams. And I'm always excited to be able to add people outside the firm to those teams with different multidisciplinary experience, like, like lawyers from in-house departments, like non-lawyers from the corporations that we work with a lot. You mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to drill down a little bit. In, a, in addition to directing the pro bono practice, you're actively involved in litigation, advocacy, direct representation direct representation. Some of your colleagues have made different choices. They've stepped back from the practice to focus exclusively on directing their firm's pro bono efforts. So could you talk a little bit about how and why you've made your decisions and how you manage to, to do it all? I don't. <laughs> I'm drinking from a fire hose 24-7. Sleep. Sleep goes out the window. Yep. <laughs> the, um, pro bono professionals, we have this discussion a lot, and I think we're all in a period of experimentation. For me, I am a born trial lawyer, and my um, my understanding of issues and my ability to translate those into things that we can bring other talent to really starts from a small germination in a live client case. And so I try to have a live client case going at any one given time. Right now, I have a couple in child welfare, a couple in human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking here in Florida, um, and uh, some appeals that are going on in the immigration space. And those are not cases I'm handling alone by any stretch of the imagination, but they are cases where I am leading or helping lead um, our work because it works better for me. I'm not sure if I were mapping this job out on a piece of paper, I would say keep space for a live practice either. Um, but I would say that it is the it, a lot of it depends on the culture of the place that you're working in. And so for me, when Baker and McKenzie brought me on and continues to um, add my talents to the, to the Baker and McKenzie soup, it is partly as a practicing lawyer, and it is from that that I gain sometimes credibility and an ability to be heard in a different way. So that's pretty important in the discussions here in, in our firm. And in other firms, just the, the recipe might be slightly different, that it, that it makes sense there. So I'm not sure there's one size fits all at all. What I am also fi have found over the, gosh, uh, 13 years that I've done this job is that I don't think there's one single pro bono professional's job that you can map directly against any others. I think they're all slightly different. Part of that's because of the personalities that made them. Um, so many of us are the first in our positions in this role. And part of it is because of the firm's growing and changing and evolving and developing, and that's inside a profession that is changing dramatically. I do a lot of work in the area of um, training lawyers and trial advocacy and just watching the entire 
entire profession from that perspective is uh, – it's just amazing. It's not the same profession from five years ago. It's not from 10 years ago. It's certainly not from 20 years ago. I'm a big believer that your justice is only as good as your lawyer, and I think that fuels me on a daily basis. But if that is true, then we have a broken system of poverty law where most people don't even get that lawyer, so there is no, maybe, um, justice or access to it in the way that they, they deserve to do it. And thinking about sort of the justice is only as good as your lawyer as a model for what's going on inside the firm, and that our answers, our advice, our work product for clients is only as good as the team that we put together. It's really a motto we live by. Yeah, that's, it's great points, and there's so many variables, right? Individual, personal, professional, the culture of the firm, where we are in time, personally, professionally, where the firm is. It's a lot of fluidity um, and evolving um, over time. So you and the firm, as you mentioned, um, as part of your impact decisions and personal choices, are heavily invested in children's rights work, including direct representation of children and youth related to immigration, child welfare, juvenile justice, education, as we heard, and other areas. Let's dig into some of these unique pro bono efforts. So could you talk a little bit about children's rights summits? The Children's Rights Summit was an experiment that has just blossomed into now a habit and a team and a community of people really trying to drive towards uh, excellence for kids, especially vulnerable youth around the country. So in 2014, we had this idea that we talked to so many, especially in-house counsel, who say, I want to help. Children's issues are so, so important to me. I can't believe what I read in the newspaper. I can't believe, well, not the newspaper, usually the online newspaper, <laughs> I must say. But I can't believe what I'm seeing in the media about this issue, and I can't figure out a, how, how to help. And then we have children's rights folks, and by children's rights, I mean anyone in the justice system, people that represent kids and parents and family members and child welfare and foster for kids in foster care and juvenile justice for kids who've been arrested and schools, public benefits, I mean, you name it, saying, gosh, if we could get more attention from the private bar on these issues, we could put everybody to work. Um, but we are, you know, we don't have as many helpers as we could use. And to, to tell you the truth, Rena, I was um, at a at a conference. It was sort of a, a meeting for one of the most up and coming multinational companies in the world, and they were talking about all the great things that they're going to do to really transform the world and transform it for people like you and me that live on iPhones and our, our world is digital. And I was watching them describe a world that every kid I've ever represented in the child welfare and the juvenile justice space are are out of. They're left behind. They are just not part of that at all. I was sitting in that meeting trying to email people to try to figure out what the size was of one of my clients because she needed back-to-school shirts. And there had been a backup in the system, so they couldn't get her back-to-school shirts paid for by the system. So I was going to go buy her back-to-school shirt. But there was no electronic platform or digital platform that would allow me to get that information. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm standing in front of the birthplace of the new information, you know, just transformation of the country, and I can't figure out you know, and people are checking handwritten notes about kids in the child welfare system. It's just ridiculous. And so seeing that gap, we said, let's let's do a summit. Let's say if we put these people in the same room and we put some of these challenges in front of them. Would we get new solutions? Would we get more people to feel like they could help and volunteer? And would we help the children's community find ways to use that talent better? And in 2014, 
much to our surprise, 120 people came into that room together and spent the day together and said, what's next? And worked in between that summit and the next summit in 2015, where 180 people came into the room, um, graciously hosted by Google and really led by a community of Silicon Valley companies who are sitting on the planning committee for this. And now we're getting ready for our third summit in December, which will have the same goals, right? Let's take different talents and put them together. Let's take technologists. Let's take lawyers. Let's take lawyers in public interest. Let's take lawyers in the private interest. Let's put some of the most ridiculous things we are not getting right for kids living at or near the poverty level, homeless kids, LGBTQ kids, immigrant kids, with different things that might, you know, color what it is that their legal needs are. And let's see if we can come up with better solutions because different voices are in the room. So far, it's really been miraculous. People look forward to it. People talk about it. Um, and people use the summit to help them shape how they can help in the years in between uh, the summit. Another innovative and pioneering effort that you have led was the creation of a series of homeless youth handbooks. Could you tell us about that? Happily, um, because we also might have fallen into that one, to tell you the absolute truth. Um, Because of our work with organizations that address children's issues across the country, one of them came to us and said, you know, we just, we really need a pamphlet. We're spending so much time answering the phone with calls from kids talking about legal problems that they have that we don't have time to, as lawyers, change the system and sue the state or whatever needs to be done in order to change those systems. Could you guys, hey, Baker, could you guys help us write a, and I kid you not, Rena, the, the noun was pamphlet. Can you help us write a pamphlet that can help address some of these issues for homeless youth and homeless teens? Um, that pamphlet turned out to be a 275-page, when you print it out, <laughs> uh, handbook in 18 areas of law that we learned from talking to a bunch of people and our own experiences and that organization uh, that need that kind of help. And happily, Starbucks in-house department said we would love to help create that. So it was not a Baker McKenzie product. It was a joint product of Starbucks lawyers hand-in-hand with Baker McKenzie lawyers on each chapter. And we did that and produced it in 2013, and it has been a whirlwind since then. States, meaning children's rights folks in states or companies in states, have reached out to us and said, we need one of these for Minnesota. So we did one with Ecolab and Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services in 2014. In Illinois, we did one with United Airlines and the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. And I think that actually came out in the beginning of 2015. Right now, we're working on one in California with Bay Area Legal Aid, with Tipping Point and the Youth Law Center, together with our friends at Google, to write not only the handbook, but a second version and sort of a more interactive version that will live online in in a much more exciting way. We're working on one in Texas right now with Texas Appleseed and the Weatherford Company, and we're just about to produce one late this fall in New York together with an outstanding institution for homeless youth called The Door and the in-house department of Mondelez globally who came in and said, let us help you create one for New York. There's other companies who've asked us about states that they are either based in or really tied to and they want to see this resource. And then we've had really interesting experiences where youth organizations have come to us and said, we didn't think we needed this, but then we saw theirs and realized there was nowhere to go and find all the information in one place, written for kids so they can absorb it and use it, and maybe even more importantly, written for the non-lawyers and maybe specializing lawyers that need a place to get all the answers they can guide those kids on legal questions ranging from, you name it, you know, consumer protection, get a copy of my ID, domestic violence, criminal justice, housing, just anything that you can imagine that a 16-year-old 
who is couch surfing or sleeping on a bench every once in a while or is really trying to find a spot in a shelter has these legal issues that are either causing his homelessness, prolonging his homelessness, or just leaving him without dignity because his rights aren't realized as a homeless youth. Well, I still read the newspaper, and I actually have a hard copy of one of the handbooks on my bookshelf, and I love looking at it. We are so inspired by this amazing work. Thank you for sharing it. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to Angela for joining us today. And be sure to join us for part two of our conversation next week when we'll be discussing teaming with corporate clients on pro bono matters, among other things. To learn more about us and our work, visit our website at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. We'd be very grateful if you could subscribe, rate, and review the Pro Bono Happy Hour on iTunes. It's quick and easy to do. Leave a review by October 31st, and you'll be entered in our review contest. No tricks, only treats. In addition to the prizes, your honest feedback would make it easier for other listeners to find the program, expanding the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Shout out to iTunes nickname, LZ3813. LZ, if I can call you that, left a review in iTunes recently writing, enjoy this program. I'm finding each episode to be entertaining, informative, and inspiring. Thank you for the time and effort that it takes for you to create such meaningful content. Impressive. Well, thank you, LZ3813, for the kind words and the feedback. We're grateful and honored. And thanks to all of you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.